This is the Daily Beast Podcast. I'm John Avalon, Editor-in-Chief of the Daily Beast. On this podcast, you're going to hear conversations about news, politics, pop culture, oh, and so much more from Daily Beast Radio on Sirius XM Inside Channel 121. Uh, Daily Beast Radio airs Saturdays at 9 a.m. and Sundays at 5 a.m. and noon. So let's get to it. Let's get on with the show. All right, it's time for some beast style. We've got Lizzie Crocker and the estimable Tim Tiemann in the house. Hello. Um, and uh, this week, beast style, uh, Lizzie kind of collared outside the lines a bit, picked up a great story that one would not typically associate with style, uh, but has a, uh, a, a, it's a sex scandal, an ongoing rape trial located at the uh, leafy environs of uh, St. Paul's boarding school, the alma mater of Secretary of State John Kerry, oh. I believe. Uh, Lizzie, what'd you find? Um, well, I, I wrote about this at the beginning of the week um, when, the, at the start of the trial, when they were, and they're still mentioning this a lot, the sort of the idea that this, um, there was a tradition at the school that the, the, that the, the man accused was involved in, and it's called the senior salute. And um, the senior salute involved essentially, it was basically, you know, hooking up with upper, lower classmen, and he was a senior. And this one girl, the, um, the alleged victim of, of rape in this case, um, he had picked as, you know, the senior salute involved sort of picking uh, lower class. So the seniors year. pick the, the younger girls they like, and then. But, they it, but it went both ways. Senior women also pick the younger men. Really? Like. Yeah. How and, about that? And hooking up, you know, mo- hooking up is the is the is the term these days. <laughs> Range from these everything days. from as students students told me, it ranged from everything from holding hands to having sex. So, so there was I wrote about I sort of. Ex- explored, you know, this use of whether how much they're going to look into the senior salute as proof of rape culture on St. St. Paul's and as a way to further convict, to as, as evidence, more evidence that this man was at the senior raped her. And I actually think that that element from speaking to the students is, is irrelevant, the senior salute. Um, that this tradition was, I do not think that this is a predatory tradition. I think that their encounter from the evidence that I've read, and then we can talk about more about what's happened since then in the, tr- in the trial, but I think that the, it, it, the senior salute had nothing to do with the actual encounter that, that took place. Well, it, created, it certainly created the context it, well, for it. Well, it did, but it certainly created the context, but I do not think that I, I, the point is, is that this is a tradition that was from the two students I spoke to. It was, it was something that was sort of seen as a joke. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't it was, seen it was as a, a predatory. It was good fun. Right. It wasn't seen or as whatever. a kind of predatory, frat-like um, culture that I think is exaggerated, often exaggerated anyway, but. I mean, course, I, we don't know what happened in the moment right. with the accused. Right, but, that, but that's, the, that's the point that I'm trying to make, yeah. essentially, in a sort of perhaps an articulate way. But no, <laughs> stop in a very articulate way. Um, but, yeah, the, the point is, your point is that this instance of alleged rape, which is being tried in a court right now, um, isn't necessarily reflective of the culture surrounding senior salute. 
Right. right. I mean, as one girl, one former student said, she's uh, she grad, she's now a junior in college. She said um, that it was a way. Of, she put it as it was a way of saying, um, you know, going after pursuing those people younger, younger, younger students who you may never see again, and um, before you graduate. So she really. She really did not think of it as a as a as a big deal. And did she or, participate in it as a woman? She would not. She would not divulge that, which perhaps is revelatory in itself. <laughs> it's kind of interesting though, because it does create. <clears throat> it may well be, all be. I mean, that's the, the bottom line. From that is that it's all innocent fun. But of course, it's all innocent fun depends on everyone abiding by. It's all innocent fun. Correct. And of course, yes. uh, individuals do not always abide by the collective rule in the moment of whenever, of whatever they may or may not be involved in. And that's the problem, isn't it? Well, it is a problem. And I don't think Lizzie's is making light of the alleged instance at all. No, um, She's no. talking about, she's trying to make a very particular separation between this, this alleged crime, which is on trial, and uh, the cross-examination of the young woman I found I mean, just in, in, in the, just the initial reports of it, just really designed to shame and embarrass her. Really? Now, Is that what it was yeah. like? Now, I, I th- I'm going to have to disagree That's with fine. You. Please do. Because... More interesting when you do. <laughs> I think that we all have that, that instinct, too. You read it, and but at the same time, I think that the, the prosecution should have done a better job preparing her for that. Mm-hmm. And Fair. Because that is what we do in the criminal justice system. They, the, they are going to be vicious, you know. Her, her, his lawyer is Whitey was Whitey Bulger's lawyer, and 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 yeah. I don't think what I'm trying to say is that I is I think that we look at we're treating rape in many ways as a criminal offense differently than we treat any other criminal offense these days. And you're saying because there's a sensitivity towards the gender politics right. and the power imbalance. And for instance, so I saw someone link to that to the story describing the 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 cross-examination or, and saying, "Oh, and you wonder why women don't report it to report you know, rape to police." Well, well what's the alter- what's the better alternative that this man not that this man that she never reported it that right that she sort of suffered through this on her own. I mean, it, and as I wrote in another piece today, it's, it is a victim's right to choose to pursue justice or not. But, but I think that well, to yeah. say that, the, the, to say that to, I think that you're wrong to use that blaming the victim rhetoric in the, concept, in the context of. So I, what I caught from, from the transcripts, from the, 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 the elements of, of the, the cross-examination I read, you're right, it's not anything um, that would not be seen the equivalent of in other cases. But because the question becomes, was this consensual or not? The cross-examination, and this is a way that sex crimes are different than other crimes, particularly as the definition of rape has changed, evolved, whatever you want to say, um, that line between a consensual act when it becomes non-consensual. And in the in the cross examination, there was a certain, well, you were asking for it. I mean, you 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 raised your hands to take off your shirt, didn't you? And did you make it easy to take off your dress? You know, those things which are have an element not only of of detail, uh, 
that is supposed to the jury's taking into account or the judge, but there's a degree of embarrassment because it has to do with sexuality and, and that blurred line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I certainly think... There's no corollary in a... Sorry, there's no corollary in a, in a violent... Like in a, in a murder trial or an assault trial. I know. You're, that's absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But when you're evidence gathering or when you're trying to deduce the truth or how a situation actually unfolded, as a journalist, for example, mm-hmm. those are all the kinds of questions I would, I would seek to ask. Yes. Um, and I... Therefore, I think the questions are fair. I think there's a slight problem, and we've discussed it before when we've, dis- we've been discussing campus sexual assault and all this sort mm-hmm. of thing. Mattress growing. Where <sighs> there's an orthodoxy growing that to even... Yeah, let's say you have reported something to police which you should have done and not carried a mattress around and ashamed another person in public without letting him have his say. Let's say you have gone down the route. One has to give oneself over to the wheels of justice to do the wheels of justice's job, I think. Yeah. And questions need to be asked. And I honestly think victim culture as it stands has become so predominant that now even in the context of a courtroom to ask questions of a, an alleged victim has now become an attack on that victim or somehow a a sort of impugning of that victim. Whereas in fact, I think everyone needs a bucket of cold water and say, well, actually, we need to ask the questions. And and everyone just needs to grow up about it. And it's not nice, but this incident isn't nice. And if we're ever going to uncover the truth of what this incident was, we need to ask some unnice questions. And they're, they're not meant as value judgments. They are meant as evidence gathering. Let's all grow I, up. I think, I think that's exactly right. Um, and I think a trial is infinitely preferable to the sort of the, the public shaming exercise and the politicization of the mattress girl scenario where the, there was a declining to press charges. Uh, right. Well, well, I think that also we've seen so much on with these camp, these college campus cases is that there are all these you know these sort of campus tribunals and and so it was it was interesting to, it's interesting now that this case for, from a high school has is now gone to to criminal court and it will be interesting to mm-hmm. see how it plays out because i think that we've seen that the campus tribunals these cam, campus sort of kangaroo courts they they're not working they're not mm-hmm. no one's happy with them and what i think what all three of us are also talking about is there's a victim there's an element of fetishizing victim culture right now. There is. Um, very much And creating so. a double standard based on sort of, you know, exquisite sensitivity versus the, 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 the meanness of card hold, hard, you know, hard cold facts um, that itself leads to a very dangerous place. Right. I think so where, because where everybody immediately gravitates to one side sure. um, over the other without actually knowing anything about the other or wanting to sit through and listen to the evidence of a trial. And I think it makes it very difficult for... Um, uh, I think it makes it very difficult for justice to take place even or for lawyers properly to do their jobs um, because if they speak to a witness or a, an alleged victim in a certain way, they are themselves now being cast as persecutors. Mm-hmm. And and, you're just, and and at some point, I, I, f- I feel for them in a sense because as a journalist and as someone who, you know, like we all do, all three of us do, we have careers where people are trying to stop us from getting to whatever the truth is we're trying to find out, whether mm-hmm. it's a piece of celebrity gossip or a very serious um, mm-hmm. allegation of assault. There are all kinds of mechanisms and all kinds of people seeking to stop questions being asked. So in a forum, yeah. like a courtroom, where finally questions can be asked, I think we we must let justice do its thing and not impugn 
the mechanisms of justice as, 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 as they unfold, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And, and the larger backdrop is, you know, as journalists, it's our job to evoke feeling, but ultimately assert the supremacy of thinking. And I think the larger stakes behind this sort of drift towards victim culture is feeling and being treated as supreme. You're so right. I absolutely agree with that. We all have our biases, but this idea of we must believe, we must believe at, you know, at all, in all costs, it's kind of faith-based pursuit of justice. I mean, we've seen this at other times in no, you're exactly history, right. too, and, and we have to resist that. That's a very good piece. Lizzie Crocker, <laughs> you should write that. 600 words. I actually have written that. <laughs> I know. Well, it's been a theme. But I, I like it very much. Anyway, let's move on to the Miller Beard briefly. Oh, okay. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm five days old at the moment, as I would say. Um, really? I, That's I, a five day? I, I hate shaving during yeah. the week. Yeah, yeah. I hate um, shaving during the weekend. Oh, I'm okay. during it the week. Yeah. yeah. So the Millie Beard, um, so for American listeners, there was once <laughs> a leader of the British Labour Party, the opposition in Britain, called David um, Ed Miliband, I ah, should say. I know, I do it all the, well, five years away, I get my Milibands mixed up. <laughs> uh, Ed Miliband, so he lost grievously at the general election against David Cameron um, and has not been cited much since, although he's been much criticised for leaving the party rudderless um, as it undertakes its leadership election at the moment. Um, currently being topped in opinion polls by Jeremy Corbyn, a hard left, far left candidate who rocks a, uh, a purely salt, no pepper, uh, white beard. So Ed Miliband turns up at Brisbane Airport a couple of days ago in a tourist shot, subsequently tweeted, rocking Does Brisbane, Australia, Brisbane, Australia, rocking a beard, which um, British tweeters went absolutely nuts for all genders, all sexualities, animal plants, minerals, <laughs> vegetables, everyone goes nuts for the Millie beard as it became known as a hashtag. Um, we don't know if he's going to keep it. Um, but is it, Australia where it, is it continuing a tradition of shamed Brits <laughs> sort of departing? From That's, where we go. <laughs> That's where we go. <laughs> That's where we go. No, I think he wanted to get. Well, it's as far away as you can go. Probably when you fly from London, it takes a very. As someone who's been there, it takes a very long time to get there and back. Uh, so it is a place to escape to for sure. Um, but he is rocking a holiday beard. Now we talked a lot. Um, I talked to people yesterday. But they say it's not a shame beard, although the shame beard has a long and venerable tradition, as you say. Men, when they lose it, become depressed, lose a relationship, lose a general election, <laughs> get a beard. Um, but in his case, it would seem to just be the bog standard holiday bum fluff, uh, as we would call holiday it. Holiday um, bum fluff. <laughs> it's so funny. I love, the, I love the editing process at the Daily Beast. When I put bum fluff, not thinking twice about it and, and copy somebody, my editor said last night, Tim, can I just ask what's bum fluff? <laughs> and I said, well, it's, it's beard, it's, 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 for, it's for praise for when you grow a bit on your face. She said, I love it. I'm curious about the origin. Is it from like the origin of the tradition, the, the bum as the homeless person? No. No. No, it's, no, it's okay. the, it's the, it's the, it's the British right. posterior well, tradition. Right. Okay. Still just, uh, it's not working for me. <laughs> I don't think it's going to take off in this country. I don't think it judging is. Judging by the looks around the table. <laughs> I, I, would, I would short that, yeah. So um, the question is, will Miliband keep it? And people say that he should, because as I was saying to a barber in London last night, he said, look, um, uh, two years ago, one in 20 of my city clients, city of London businessman clients would have a beard, it was seen as, you know, letting go of yourself, certainly nothing you could wear in the boardroom. And now, you know, he says it's eight in 20 at least and, and popular amongst all age groups. Well, how about that? Um, and uh, should we hit uh, a more serious topic? Yeah, absolutely. All right, um, the 
in some ways, the biggest news this week um, was the hacking of Ashley Madison, which is this sort of lo loathsome adultery site, um, depending on your moral perspective, but I'll say loathsome. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was basically a site for people to commit adultery. Adults, though, consenting adults. Now, um, they had said there was some jackass provision where if you paid them 20 bucks a month, they'd make sure all of your information disappeared forever. Now, I don't want to give away the ending here, but it turns out they weren't really doing that. <laughs> um, they were, however, quite happily pocketing around $1.7 million in those 20 buck fees. So some vigilante hackers um, broke in and released all this data. Um, and uh, according to our initial reporting, I mean, a number of government email addresses, not only US, but Australia, Brit. And Brits, yeah. Um, all popped up. Mm -hmm. uh, among the names of those folk was one Josh Duggar. Oh, yes. One of the Duggar families. Is it Dugar? Duggar? Duggar. Duggar. I always want to say Dugar. I, I want to say Dugar, too. Yeah. Anyway, um, a former member of the Family Research Council, um, somebody who had already come into trouble with the law for apparently uh, sexually assaulting uh, allegedly one of his sisters a long time before and having it covered up. Um, and he wanted uh, conventional sex in a bubble bath, which is sort of sweet, I guess, within the context of creepy adultery. But the point is the guy's a professional scold. And, um, I mean, anti-LGBT, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And surprise, surprise, he's just as broken, if not more broken, than the rest of us. Mm -hmm. So that glass house is in shatters, people. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I, w I mean, I would say it's, it's, isn't it often true, though? It's those people who are, and, and as I said, you, I heard that you were um, very much morally opposed to, to Ashley Madison, but I think it's often those people who, who are out there, um, as you said, you know, that he was a family well, he was like a professional skull. A professional he was a moralistic judge. Right. Person. And yet, of course, he's the one who, I can't remember J. the line in J. Michelson's piece today. Can anyone remember? It was a very good line. Anyway. We cannot read your mind. All right. Figure out which <laughs> those lines. Yeah. It was, but it essentially said, you know, it's often the person who, who, you know, occasionally with, pretends to hold family values so high, or it's sometimes the case that, that they then break those, break those values, or, um, yeah, we've you know it's not. It's just the danger of moral superiority, period, right. as a political or personal calling card. And then what Jay does is kind of delineates the number of sort of face plants that have occurred by these professional moralizers, mm. particularly within the evangelical circuit, particularly when they seem to be obsessed with being anti-gay. Surprise, surprise! You know they get caught with like some masseuse and a hotel full of meth. I mean, you know. Right. Um, the thing, I mean, the thing that Jay captured so well in his piece, and it's a really wonderful piece, and I hope the listeners who are, who are listening look it up, Jay Michelson on, on the Dugars, um, is that, that there was a time, and I mean, I, I obviously didn't live here at that moment, but there was a time, and it was mirrored in Britain by similar awful people, where um, LGBT equality wasn't even a, 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 a piece of pasture that was within view. I mean, there was such homophobia and such discrimination when I was growing up, uh, legislated in statute, um, there was no one fighting it. The only people fighting it then were gay people and gay activists who were extremely brave because there wasn't the level of outness 
in those days. I know it might seem strange to listeners now because things have accelerated and become very good very quickly, it would seem. Um, but as Jay makes the point in his piece, you know, the polarities of faith um, and religious following in this country mm -hmm. um, are at pole ends. There's no, there's no middle ground. There are some fundamentalists at one end um, with a lot of money and not losing support. And then at the other end, some people who are a bit more moderate. In Britain, thankfully, God is well away from politics, and we, we have that's a good tradition. We have <laughs> L, we have we have LGBT equality across the board enshrined in statute in Britain. At yeah. least at least we have that. And it's not to say that homophobia and discrimination does doesn't happen, but in under the law, we are equal. Mm -hmm. Now the thing about the Dugars and the thing that makes it so sweet for for many of us watching is the level of hatred that the Family Research Council. Uh, currently under the stewardship of uh, Tony Perkins, um, has propagated um, over the years has been immense, and immense at a time when <laughs> the level of harm, particularly at a time when so many gay men, gay and bisexual men, were dying of AIDS, um, with hatred and homophobia as, as a backdrop to that. The, the amount of sway that the FRC and groups like them held uh, with these people running them um, makes the sweetness of a fall of someone like Josh Dugar particularly sweet for those observing, uh, for those of us observing it. It's not just a hypocrite, and you can go, yeah, sure, those those people that say this stuff, of course, they're mucking about back. Mm -hmm. The uh, the the backdrop and the level of malevolence and despicable behaviour and prejudice that these people propagated mm -hmm. should never be dismissed. And it's only recently that straight allies in great numbers have come on board the LGBT movement, and it's lovely having them here. And we needed them, but we needed them back then too. And they weren't. No one was around back then when these people were really, as Jay puts it in his piece, with the boots, with their boots on our necks, grinding our faces into the dirt. And we, those of us who are around, will never forget those times, and we will never forget that the power that these people command and can still command. And I, until legislative equality is achieved, I will keep myself uh, an oldie. A very watchful eye on the, on on these sorts of uh, these sorts of people. So I take great pleasure in seeing what's happened to this dreadful person, and I would ask listeners to really think about the effects of these groups and the, the hate that they propagate, because it's no laughing matter, and it's not something to be just easily dismissed as like, oh yeah, there goes another hypocrite, another 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 person. He, he these people do real damage and have done real damage. Well said, Tim Tiemann. I uh, think you know one one of the one of the beast mission statements is we, we confront bullies, bigots, and hypocrites, and sometimes people can be all three. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you very much, guys. It's good talking. Thank you. You've been listening to the Daily Beast Radio podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or wherever you get your fix. Uh, tune into more Daily Beast Radio on Sirius XM Insight 121, Saturdays at 9 and Sundays at noon. I'm John Avalon, editor in chief of the Daily Beast.